Well, as Mary Kay uh, said, we are picking up where we left off last year in the book of 1 Corinthians. And just to refresh our memory, I wanted to give you just a little bit of background on the book. Uh, Paul himself, the Apostle Paul, was the one who planted the church in the city of Corinth. And these were people that he had gotten to know very well. After spending some time with them, he moved to a city called Ephesus for about three years. And while he was in Ephesus, Paul wrote a letter which he sent to the Corinthians, which we no longer have. Uh, It was lost at some point in history. But following that, the Corinthians themselves responded to this letter that Paul had sent to them which then in turn prompted Paul to send them a new letter, which we have right here called the book of 1 Corinthians. And so uh, this book, 1 Corinthians, is Paul's response to the Corinthians' response to his original letter. And what's very clear on reading the book of 1 Corinthians is that this church was a mess. In fact, in some ways, it was a disaster. Uh, If you remember, in chapters 1 through 4 of the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul had to deal with some issues there of pride and jealousy and division and greed. We looked at that in January of 2014. And then next, in chapters 5 and 6, Paul tackled the problem of sexual immorality within the church. And we looked at that last year, January of 2016. Now, today, in January of 2017, we are going to begin a series that's going to look at chapters 7 and 8. And in chapter 7, Paul begins to switch gears in the book. And what he does is he begins to answer some questions that the Corinthians had asked him about in the letter that they had written to him. Now, it's very unlikely that they'd written these questions in in a kind of uh, bullet form Q&A. Instead, what had happened is they probably took issue with some of the things that he had said in his first letter. And now what they were doing is pushing back against some of these things to which now uh, Paul is going to respond. You're going to have to bear with me this morning. I've got a bit of a cold. Well, the issue at hand here this morning in chapter 7, is very interesting in that it is actually the opposite problem that Paul had been dealing with in the chapters before. Uh, In chapters 5 and 6, Paul had been addressing the rampant sexual immorality that was happening within the church, and he makes the point that the people within the church in Corinth are actually worse than the people who are outside the church in Corinth. In fact, if you look back in your Bible at chapter 5, verse 1, this is what Paul writes. He says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that's not tolerated even among pagans. He says, you guys in the church are doing things that, that actually the people who are outside of the church wouldn't tolerate, and you're tolerating them. It turns out that one member of the church was sleeping with his stepmother, and there were others within the church that were visiting prostitutes. And Paul, in chapters 5 and 6, confronts this behavior and reminds them that this is not appropriate for people who belong to Christ. And so... If, in chapters 5 and 6, Paul's point is that there's too much of the wrong kind of sex happening within the church, now he's going to start chapter 7 by pointing out that there's not enough of the right kind of sex happening within the church. Paul is actually going to deal with the exactly opposite problem. 
Now, here's why he had to deal with this. This is what had happened. Uh, Perhaps as an overreaction to the kind of sexual free-for-all nature of the culture in Corinth and that same nature which was found in some of the church members in the church of Corinth, uh, another group of uh, church members had kind of reacted against that and adopted what you might call an ascetic view of sexuality. Now, asceticism involves practicing strict self-denial as a a means of attaining a higher level of spirituality. And so it was believed that to forgo the pleasures of the world, uh, by doing so, a person could please God in a better way. And so what had happened was that some within the church were applying this logic in thinking to sex. They felt that sexual relations, even between a married couple, was sort of a weak link in their spiritual life. And so they had simply stopped having sex with their spouses. And now what they did in their letter was they were looking for confirmation from Paul that this was okay. (coughs) Excuse me. Now... In a, in a very sexualized culture uh, like our own is today, this kind of thinking is actually relatively understandable. I mean, if you think about it, in our world, so much harm has been caused by the misuse of sex. And I think it's therefore somewhat understandable and naturally that especially those who have been hurt by it might begin to feel that the problem is with sex itself rather than the abuses of sex which they've experienced and are facing. And yet, after confronting many of the misuses of sex in chapters 5 and 6, Paul here is now going to argue, and, and I think he does it in a way that is both incredibly gentle but also very firm, He's going to argue that sex within marriage is not only a good thing, but that it's a, it's a significant thing. It's an important thing. And that it's meant to be a part of the lifeblood of a healthy marriage relationship. Paul has acknowledged in chapters 5 and 6 that, six, that there is a lot of dirty bathwater out there. What he's going to do now is he's going to encourage the Corinthians not to throw the baby away with it. And so in verse 1, if you'll look at that with me, he's going to bring up this topic by quoting what was written to them. Take a look at verse 1. Paul writes, Now concerning the matters about which he wrote, quote, It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Okay, so he's pointing out and addressing their quote. And what the Corinthians were stating there in that sentence was what they were trying to get at was that part of avoiding sexual immorality meant avoiding sex altogether, even sex within the confines of marriage. And what we're going to see here is we're going to see that Paul's going to refute that idea. So what I'd like to do this morning is I'd just like to walk us through this text verse by verse. It actually breaks down nicely into three different sections. And then I want to make some important comments uh, at, at the end of, of my message. So let's uh, begin here by taking a look <coughs> at verse 2. Sorry about all the pauses. Paul writes, But because of the temptation to sexual immorality... Each man should have his own wife, 
and each woman her own husband. Okay, so what Paul is going to do in this section right here, even just in this verse, is he's going to argue that actually sex within marriage is a guard against sexual immorality. It doesn't cause it, it's a guard against it. And you can see that right away if you notice that the first word that he uses in verse 2 is the word but. That tells us that he's going to go on to refute the Corinthians' viewpoint and position. The Apostle Paul knows that their reasoning is faulty. I mean, after all, what was the first thing that God told Adam and Eve to do when he put them in the garden? Be fruitful and multiply, right? Sex, going all the way back to the book of Genesis, in the right context, was joyfully invented and instituted by God. It is in and of itself good and holy and a godly activity to participate in within the proper confines, which the Bible teaches is marriage. And so the idea of in, in, that, in, in, excuse me, and so in contrast to the idea that abstaining from sex is kind of a pathway away from sexual immorality, Paul says actually, The opposite is true. It's a guard against it. He has acknowledged and even does acknowledge here that there are great sexual temptations in the world, but he's going to propose to them that the answer is not to abandon sex altogether, but instead to enjoy the gift of sex abundantly within its proper design. And he says here that this is for a man, his wife, and for a wife, her husband. Sex within marriage is to guard the couple against temptations to sexual immorality. So let's think about what this means for a few minutes. In fact, let's, let's take a, a, a scenario and we'll just kind of think about whether or not it might apply to what Paul is saying here. <clears throat> let's take, for instance, a, a, a young husband who reads this passage for the first time. And as soon as he reads it, he grabs his Bible, he runs over to his wife, and he says, Honey, I have found my new favorite Bible passage. Can we get a little plaque with this one that we're going to put on the wall? You see, honey, this represents exactly what I have felt for so long. Honey, my body is like a dam. And the pressure builds, and it builds, and it builds. And if I don't have sex more often, I am likely to have an affair. Or I'm likely to start using pornography. And so sex is to help me with that. Now is that what Paul is saying here? Is that what he's getting at? Well, there might be a slight kernel of truth to that. But it's only slight. I I don't think that's really the primary idea that Paul has here at all. First of all, A person is responsible before God to control themselves sexually regardless of their circumstances. And the quality of a person's uh, sex life at home is never to be an excuse for sin. I've actually heard men uh, blame their wives, at least in part, for having an affair. or, Or to blame their pornography use on their wife, at least to some degree. And the Bible would say that these men are terribly, terribly deceived. I think that what Paul is trying to do here within this passage is he's trying to make a much larger point. 
Now, if you look at the Bible and, and you kind of think about what the Bible teaches about sex, it seems that the Bible gives us three major reasons why God gave uh, sex, gave us sex. Uh, the first one is procreation. Sex, of, sort, uh, of course, creates the possibility of having children. The second thing that we see in the Bible is that God gave it to us for pleasure. God gave us sex simply so that we could enjoy it. Uh, God could have created uh, any number of different ways for us to have children, right? And actually, it could have been very painful. Uh, it, it could be kind of like, you know, a, a praying mantis. You, you might have to worry about getting killed afterwards. But <laughs> instead, I think we would all agree God chose the right way for us to do it. It was a good decision. That was his wisdom and, and his graciousness to us. But the third reason for sex that's presented in the Bible is something that is, is often overlooked, and that is that God gave couples sex so that they might find intimacy in marriage. Sex helps to create in a healthy marriage something that the Bible calls uh, oneness. And oneness is kind of hard to wrap your minds around, but it's this mysterious closeness, this deep interweaving of two lives in deeper and deeper love and companionship. And in fact, some of this oneness, God wired even right into our biology. You may already know this, but when a couple comes together sexually, in both the man and the woman, there are chemicals that are released in the brain which serve to intertwine the two people. Uh, In a woman... The chemical is oxytocin, which is sometimes referred to as the cuddle hormone. Uh, What it does is it creates this deep emotional bond with this woman's partner. In fact, in some some cases, uh, if you've ever heard a story of a woman who remains with a man who is abusing her, she just continues to stay with him, and, and you think to yourself, why would she do this? Is she, is she so stupid not to leave him? Well, sometimes this can actually be the result of the effect of that chemical, this hormone, that she grows so attached to him. She becomes so deeply emotionally bonded to him that she stays even though she really ought to leave. Uh, men produce the same kind of chemical, at least it has the same effect. It is called vasopressin, and it is sometimes called the monogamy hormone. And so the protective nature of sex is not just that it provides a release from sexual tension for someone, although that is a part of it, but it it creates a sort of physical and emotional and a spiritual glue within a marriage that is meant to be strengthening and protective and preserving. God made sex to play such an important part in knitting a couple together in the oneness of marriage. And it's meant to be a a reaffirmation and a reinforcement of their marriage vows so that each time that a couple comes together, they they re-express the promises that they made to each other in those commitments. And a kind of deep magic that brings about a growing sense of loyalty and love and commitment and security and vulnerability is supposed to be enjoyed by that couple and shared only by them. In other words, 
sex strengthens the bonds of the marriage as a whole. And the stronger that those ties are within a marriage, the the closer a couple becomes, the less space there is for something or someone to get in between them. And that's why I think Paul says that regular sex in marriage serves as a protection, a guard against sexual immorality. It it serves to uh, protect the marriage itself. Well, now in verses 3 through 4, he's going to get a little bit more specific on how this is to work. Why don't you take a look at that? Paul writes, The husband should not give... Excuse me. Yeah, it does say that. The husband should not give to his wife... I'm sorry. Excuse me. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband... For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. What Paul is getting at here is that sex is so important that husbands and wives should always give rights to each other sexually. Each spouse should graciously and freely grant themselves to the other. The wife does not have sole responsibility over her body, and the husband does not have sole responsibility over his body, Paul says. And this, again, is that part of the the mystery of marital oneness. The Bible teaches that these two people actually belong to each other. In fact, Paul is later going to go on, and he's going to use a very interesting and somewhat surprising expression. Uh, He says in verse 5, do not deprive one another. And this is actually a very negative statement that he makes here that points to taking a person's rights away. To deprive someone is actually to defraud them. And so if one spouse deprives the other spouse of the sexual relationship, Paul would have considered it to be like stealing from them. Now I want us to see two very important things in these two verses. And the first is this. I want you to see this. That there is a perfect mutuality in these statements that he makes here. Men and women are absolutely equal. Now, in in this time period in the world, uh, the world was very much geared towards the rights of men over the rights of women. We still have a long way to go today, but compared to where they were then, it's night and day. And so it would have been at that time absolutely countercultural for for Paul to say that a woman owns her husband. Do you see how that would have been an offense, even and maybe especially to those in the church in Corinth? But what Paul does here is he puts men and women on absolutely level ground. There is nobody, Paul would say, whose needs are more important than the other. And there's nobody whose needs are less important than the other either. I remember when I was in college, I I had a friend who was getting ready to graduate and get married. And I remember him talking about this, and he was talking about his fiancée kind of planning the wedding, and and he said, you know, he said, it doesn't really matter to me what happens on the wedding day. She can plan the whole thing however she likes, and and then he kind of smiled, and, and he said, but the honeymoon, he said, that's for me. 
And it was actually a little creepy when he said this. If I'm, <laughs> if I'm honest, <laughs> I wanted to warn her. I do not think the Apostle Paul would condone that type of thinking in any way. God did not just give sex to men primarily and to women secondarily. He gave sex to both so that they might enjoy it together equally and mutually. I uh, read somebody say that in our culture, sex is often viewed as the husband's privilege and the wife's responsibility. But what Paul does here in this passage is that he sets it up as the privilege and the responsibility of both parties. So that all of the benefits of the sexual relationship and all of the responsibilities of the sexual relationships are shared by both people because both people belong to one another. Let me give you a very PG example of this from my own marriage. My wife said to me yesterday, you're not going to use any examples of us, are you? (laughs) And I said, no, honey, except for one. I am just one, but she cleared this, so it's it's okay. Uh, And it is very PG. My wife loves to cuddle. She just, she loves to cuddle. And um, we can be sitting, you know, I'll be sitting down on a couch reading a book, and she'll come over (coughs) and sit next to me, and she will sit as close to me as a person can possibly sit to another person, to the degree that it's actually hard for me to breathe. And I kind of have to turn a page like this. And what I've learned in being married is that I'm not a cuddler. I always thought maybe I might be a cuddler, but I guess I more appreciate just being able to breathe freely and... um, (laughs) you know, sort of a a personal zone of space. But I was thinking to myself as I was working on this, this, this week, I belong to my wife. And so what that means is that my wife has cuddle privileges over me. She has privileges. I have a responsibility to cuddle with my wife, and I should not deny her those privileges. And so before you, I want to tell you that I'm going to go home, and I'm going to make two coupons that she can use... Anytime in January, anytime she likes. Actually, my father-in-law was in the last service, and he came up to me afterwards, and he said, you better make that a prepaid prepaid credit card. So I think he's probably got the right idea. Paul is saying that spouses' bodies belong to each other and that each partner is responsible to determine whatever it is that brings joy to the other person and to do their best to try to bring them that joy. Now, another thing that we've got to notice about this that's very important about these two verses, not only is there an equality, a mutuality, but second of all, there is an emphasis on giving and not on taking. Somebody made a great observation of these two verses, which I wish I had thought of myself. They said, when, when you read this, the, the sense is not... You are to do this for me. The sense that Paul places here is, I am to do this for you. This is not you are to do this for me. This is I am to do this for you. And so one spouse who says, honey, I found this great passage. Now what that means is that you owe me something. I want you to make sure that you understand this because this is going to benefit me in some way is not the heart of this passage in any way whatsoever. This here is a mutual resolution to seek what is best for the other person. The selfish use of sex goes completely against the grain of Paul's words in these passages. And so sex should never be demeaning or uncomfortable for a person. 
Married couples should never use sex to manipulate each other. It should never be used as a reward or for a bribe. Hey, honey, if you clean up the kitchen for me tonight, you might be glad you did later. (laughs) Or it shouldn't be used as a punishment either. You haven't been a very good spouse this week, sweetheart, so I hope you enjoy the couch. Paul's idea is that we are simply to give as spouses cheerfully and freely to one another. Now, what this is not talking about is sex on demand, okay? This is more of a recognition that a healthy sex life in marriage is really important and that it ought to be made a priority in the relationship. The couple should communicate clearly together as absolute equals and consider together how these things are going to realistically play out in day-to-day living. And so I hope this morning that if you are married, that maybe this would even spark some conversation for you. It's an important conversation to have. Finally, Paul gets to verses 5 and 6. Let's take a look at that. He writes, do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come back together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I think that last part ties into this first part. Paul is trying to answer here the question, is it okay to stop having sex for a time? And I think that his answer here, generally speaking, is that it's not the greatest idea. Now, he does acknowledge that a couple could decide to do this if there's some guardrails in place, and he gives four guardrails. The first is that it has to be by mutual agreement. Okay, This is not for one spouse to decide this for the other spouse, but they've got to come together and make this decision. Second of all, he says that it should be for a limited time, Third of all, he says that it should be for the purpose of prayer. And finally, he says that it ought to be made, ought to be done with the commitment that the couple would immediately come back together again afterwards. And again, his whole purpose here is to help protect both partners from any temptation that they would encounter so that nothing could find a way to leverage itself into the oneness of their marriage. Paul wants nothing to get in the way of that. I think what's important to see about this is that Paul offers it as a concession, not as a command. So Paul isn't necessarily suggesting that this is a good thing for people to do. He's more just being agreeable. It's as if he's saying, you know, if you really wanted to take a break, I guess you could do that for prayer. Uh, But it's not really a necessary thing to do, and you should be very careful about it if you do choose to do that. And so finally, I think this brings up our, just the last question in my, the body of my sermon this morning. Uh, how often should couples have sex together then? Well, there is nothing in the Bible that prescribes how often couples should sleep together. Uh, it's going to depend on a lot of different factors. Each marriage is different. Every family is different. Every individual is different. And it's probably going to change throughout a person's lifetime based on their age, their life stage, their health, their responsibilities, their desire. 
But what I think Paul's intention here in this whole passage is that sex between married partners should not be neglected. And I think the big idea of this passage is that for the good of both parties, married couples should make sex a priority for the sake of the health of their marriage. I think that's what he's saying in a nutshell. Now, I want to make a few closing comments. I know that uh, this topic impacts different people in different ways who are here this morning. For some of you, you are really glad you were here this morning. I mean, you are really, really glad. And this is the best sermon that you have ever heard in your entire life. But for others of you who are here, this was really difficult to sit through. Uh, I know that for some of you, it could be <coughs> because you're not married at this time. Uh, I was single for a lot of years. I, I didn't get married until I was 32, I think, or, or 33. And there were seasons in my life that if I had sat through this message that I just gave, I would not have enjoyed it at all. Uh, hopefully, you'll be encouraged to know that this is not the only topic we're going to be addressing in the next uh, several weeks. Uh, the, the passages that Paul writes in, in, second, in 1 Corinthians 7 and 8 do deal with marriage at some point, but he's also going to deal with singleness and with divorce and with those who have been uh, widowed. And, and so I hope you'll stick with it in the series. Every week is not going to look like it did this morning. But for others of you, even for those of you who are married, this topic still could be very difficult for you this morning. I know it's a really tender topic. And it can stir up for people feelings of guilt, feelings of hopelessness, feelings of fear, for some people, it, it brings up old wounds, it, it creates a sense of shame, and there can be just a, a general sense when we talk about these things of, of disappointment. I mean, for some people, marriage right now is not going real well, and for other people, their, their marriage feels like it's in serious jeopardy, and the topic this morning, quite honestly, is probably not very helpful. And I, I would say to anybody who is in that category right now that this passage is not the best place for you to start. Okay, This passage is probably not going to speak directly to your marriage yet. You see, in some ways, sex has incredible power. And in other ways, sex is incredibly inadequate. I mean, sex does have an amazing power to deeply intertwine two people's lives together when it's used properly in, in a relatively healthy marriage. But what sex does not have the power to do is it does not have the power to fix things that are broken. One, one way to say it is that sex can't make a bad thing good. It can only make a good thing better. Having more sex with his wife is not a solution for a man who is addicted to pornography. It's not really going to help that problem. And having more sex with her husband is not a solution to a woman who is still hurting from sexual wounds that she's experienced in the past, ways that she's been wounded, betrayed, and hurt. And along the same vein, better sex on its own cannot make a struggling marriage healthy again. Sex just does not have the power to do such a thing. But here's the good news. For you, 
God does have the power to do that. God, and, and really only God, is the one who has a power to speak into those things. And for those of you who may be here, who may be struggling with sexual sin this morning, and it's, it's hurting your marriage. It is in between the oneness of your relationship with your spouse. I would just encourage you that God, through the gospel, has the power to convict you of those things that you're doing. To put a weight on you. So that you feel the harm that it's causing. You see the devastation and the wound. You, you feel the fact that there's something that is wrong there. And not only that, but that that he would break you. That he would bring to you his forgiveness that was paid for at the cost of his own son. And that you might run to him for freedom and forgiveness and the power to change. God has the power to change that. Only God. And for those of you who might be in this room this morning who are struggling because not because you've sinned, but because you've been sinned against. Again, sex does not have the power to heal those wounds. If you try to apply this passage to that, it will backfire every time. But God does have the power to heal those wounds. God wants to bring you into his family to make you his daughter or his son, whatever in the case might be and to heal you, to restore you, to strengthen you, to refortify you, even when you've been hurt in the deepest and most tender places. And so my encouragement to those of you this morning who are married and you're really struggling with this passage would would be, before you try to apply this, it would be to commit yourself to the Lord and to commit yourself to your marriage, commit yourself to your spouse, and then to commit yourself to seeking whatever is necessary to help deal with whatever the harm is, whatever the wound is, whatever the difficulty is that you are struggling with here this morning. To start there. Start with the fact that God loves you that God wants your marriage to be good, that God is committed to you, and that God can help even when no one else, it seems, can. And our hope is the hope, I think, that Paul writes about in Ephesians chapter 3. He prayed for them that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. And for those of you who are struggling with these things today, I pray that God would grant you that power as well at the deepest part of who you are. And if we can help you in any way whatsoever, we are here to do that. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for these words that you have given us I know that they are in some ways difficult words, in some ways unexpected words that Paul gives us, and in many ways they are wonderful words. We thank you, those of us who are married this morning, for our spouses and 
well, marriage is at some time so wonderful and joyful and good, we just recognize that at other times it can be very painful and hard. And that it often pulls out of us things that we don't feel like we have in us. Marriage requires a strength that we often feel we don't have. And so we pray that we would be a church family who comes to you individually for our strength. That you would be our strength so that then we could bring that strength within our marriage, our marriages. We need that so badly. We pray that you would give us healthy marriages in this church. We pray for those whose marriages are struggled, are struggling or that feel like they are broken, that you would uh, provide healing in each of them. And that even this morning, that those who are facing difficulties would find new encouragement to seek you and, and to trust you and to walk with you somehow, whatever that might mean for them. We pray that the, the marriages within this church would have a deep impact on our families and on our friends. And, and that as we learn what it means to experience that joy of oneness, that uh, that it would be an example of the good grace that, that you have given us in Christ and the good desires that you have for us. We pray for those this morning who are unmarried and want to be married. We prayed for those who used to be married at one time and, and are not now and, and all the different circumstances in life. We pray that you would protect them this morning, encourage them this morning. We thank you that you are a God who does care about the deepest places in our hearts and our minds and our lives. And we just love you for that. We love you that you could be any kind of God, but you're such a good God and such a kind God and such a giving God. So we praise you today in Jesus' name.